Welcome to Set for Life with Pastor Ray Jensen. You can find us at setforliferadio.com. Romans 10.9 says that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. So let's listen from God's Word, verse by verse, on how we can prepare for the coming of the Lord and Messiah Jesus, who died on the cross, so that you can be set for life. You'll be set for life if you give your heart and believe what He's done for you. You'll be set for life with the treasure stored up in heaven when you're through. You'll be set for life. 1 Samuel 21 and 7. Now a certain man of the servants of Saul was there that day, detained before the Lord. And his name was Doeg, an Edomite, the chief of the herdsmen who belonged to Saul. And David said to Ahimelech, Is there not here on hand a spear or a sword? For I have brought neither my sword nor my weapons with me, because the king's business required haste. So the priest said, The sword of Goliath the Philistine, (laughs) whom you killed in the valley of Elah, there it is, wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. If you will take it, that, take it. For there is no other except that one here. And David said, there is none like it. Give it to me. (laughs) Wow, this is the sword I chopped Goliath's head off with. And here we are again, you know, let's go. (laughs) Just an awesome moment. But it sounds cool, but how did that sword get in the tabernacle? What's it doing here? (laughs) The last time we heard of this sword, like I said, was when David cut Goliath's head off with it. It's likely, I think, that David dedicated that sword to the tabernacle as a symbol of God's protection when Israel needed it. It's like, tabernacle guys here, this is the sword that defeated the, the God mocker Goliath. I want to dedicate it. And so they took it and they wrapped it up in an ephod as a reminder of what happened on that day when that giant rivaled and mocked the God of Israel. So it's awesome, though, how that in David's time of need, running from Saul, that the priest gave it back to him. So again, not just the showbread was provision, but now David's got a sword, that same sword that reminds that was dedicated to remind everybody that God protects Israel is now back in David's hands. Do you think if you were David holding that sword that you would not be reminded what the Lord did that day and it would embolden you with better courage and strength to do what you need to do? David is running from Saul. I got to get away from Saul. Here's the sword. You remember when you killed that giant? Come on, David. Let's stand up straight. Let's get it done. That's kind of how I'd take it. (laughs) So, wow, what a moment here. The priest gave it back. And as we read in verse 7, one of Saul's guys named Doeg, if I'm saying it right, happened to be a knob that day. So you can see how the Lord provided for David's needs before David even knew he needed it. Did you know, friends, that the Lord provides for your needs often before you even know that you need it? We know we need to pray for things we need, but there's times things will come at you. The Lord's given it to you before you are even aware. Thank you, God. 1 Samuel 22 and 9. Then answered Doeg the Edomite, who was set over the servants of Saul, and said, I saw the son of Jesse going to Nob, to Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub. So now you can see how timely 
it was, or let me say not just timely, but ahead of time, that the Lord provided for David by giving him that sword and the bread. Doeg spotted David in Nob. And so he reported it to Saul that David was there. So the chase is still on. David got away, but now it's been reported. 1 Samuel 21 and 10. Then David arose and fled that day from before Saul and went to Achish, the king of Gath. And the servants of Achish said to him, Is this not David, the king of the land? Did they not sing of him to one another in dances, saying, Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands? People in Achish's land over here in Gath are starting to say, Isn't that that David guy? Now, let's uh, dress this up real quick. David's situation just got really desperate. Saul's back after me again. He darted off. It's like... um, you can see the desperation going on. But let me ask you, does Gath ring a bell? He went to Gath. Does Gath remind you of anybody? Let's look at 1 Samuel 17. I want to remind you. And a champion went out from the camp of the Philistines named Goliath from Gath. He just ran to Goliath's hometown with Goliath's sword. Uh oh. <laughs> He takes the very sword that he used to chop Goliath's head off, and he goes, fleeing for his life again. He threw all caution to the wind by running to Gath, the hometown of Goliath, the the dead Philistine champion Goliath that he killed. Now, you remember a few chapters back, the Philistines were refusing to let the Israelites work with metal because they wanted to prevent them from weaponizing themselves. Remember, if they wanted any metal work done, they had to contract it to the Philistines. They had to pay them. The Philistines would not let the Israelites work with metal. As a matter of fact, no Israelite had any swords except for Saul and Jonathan. They were the only ones that had a sword on them. And so David, he carried this sword. Here's an Israelite guy carrying a sword into Gath that would have had Philistine craftsmanship to it, not to mention being the sword of their great champion Goliath, that must have been a very easily recognizable sword. And here he is, (laughs) I'm trying to get away from Saul, and I'm carrying this sword into Gath. What do you think the people's going to do? I think they're going to attack him. So he's walking through there with this sword. He may as well be shouting, hello, David the Israelite's here. And the people recognized him. They knew it was him. Is this not David, the king of the land? It's amazing how Saul refused to recognize David as king, but the Philistines did. 1 Samuel 21 and 12. Now David took these words to heart and was very much afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. So he changed his behavior before them. He pretended madness in their hands, scratched on the doors of the gate and let his saliva fall down on his beard. Then Achish said to his servants, look, you see, the man is insane. Why have you brought him to me? Have I need of madmen that you have brought this fellow to play the madman in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house? Okay, David did a weird but very smart thing here. (laughs) He's doing all this weird stuff. And what's going on? You can tell from the... Achish's reaction, what this means. David was spared from being attacked by the Philistines. How did he exactly accomplish this by pretending to be crazy? Back then, the people regarded insanity as that you were extremely wickedly evil. 
if you were insane and nutty, crazy, they felt like you had this tremendous amount of wickedness curse on you. And they also perceived that insane people would show up as a warning sent by their false gods that something terrible was about to happen to them. And so what David did was he took advantage of Philistine thinking. They pictured David as being invincible since he slayed Goliath. They know, isn't that the guy that slayed Goliath? He killed our biggest, mightiest guy. But if our gods could mess him up, something really bad must be coming to us. You see what he did? David scared them. He put the fear on them using their own false religion to do it. And so they were now so scared of him. They thought their false gods were about to bring forth this massive curse. They were too scared to let David even be around them. They thought their gods were about to put a curse. And so King Achish saw David as being the most severe warning he had ever seen, that he didn't even want David anywhere near his house. He's insane. Get him out of here or else we're all going to die by the gods. Smooth move, David. Well done. That was a good trick. And it worked. The Lord was continuing to protect David and he escaped from Gath. And you know, sometimes the Lord will bless you and protect you in very weird and unexpected ways. (laughs) Now, if you ever see me doing that, I don't know. Sometimes I want to. But um, let's go back to the bread of presence real quick. I want to close it up. This Old Testament showbread placed on the table in the tabernacle provides us a wonderful picture of Jesus Christ. John 6, 35, Jesus said, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. Jesus is holy before God. Where was the bread placed? It was placed before God. Jesus is holy before God. He provides us true sustenance. And just like how the bread of presence was kept continually on the table, Jesus is always present. Jesus is always there. They kept that bread on the table. It's always there. We should at least be able to understand anytime you need to call on the name of the Lord, he's there and he's your true sustenance. He will give you life. Jesus is always present. Now, when David asked the priest Ahimelech for food, He gave David the bread of the presence because there was nothing else to give him. That's it. There's no other bread but this. That's the only bread we got. Jesus, the bread of life, he is it. He's the only way to eternal life because there is no other way available. John 14, 6, Jesus said to him, I am the way the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. There is no other bread. I'll feed off something else. I'll feed off my 401k. I'll feed off my great millions that I've accumulated for myself. No, that's not going to work. That is not true sustenance. Jesus is the bread of what? Did he say the bread of finances? No, he said the bread of life. Friend, if you want life eternal, Money's not going to do it. You need the bread of life. Money is not life. It's just finances. It's here one minute, gone the next. One bad investment, it's gone. But Jesus is always present. Now, if you look at the legalities here, then according to God's law, we think about David. He really shouldn't eat that bread. 
He really shouldn't have been given that bread. David, you really shouldn't be qualified to be able to get that bread. Technically, by the law, you shouldn't have that. Then according to God's law, we have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And so there are those who would say that you and I are legally restricted from partaking of the bread of life. We blew it. We're not qualified. We're not in the right lane. We messed up. We sinned and we fell off and blew all the legalities. We should not be eating this bread, technically, by law, because we messed up. We should not be qualified to be saved. And in one sense, that's true. We're not qualified. And so there enters the argument. How can we be saved if the law says we messed up? How can we get this bread if the law says you blew it? I want to take you to the New Testament where some people tried to bring up an argument to Jesus, and let's look at how he handled it, okay? Matthew 12 and 1. It says, at that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. Very important that you know which day that is, because they had all these laws. You can't work. You can't do this. Can't do that. And his disciples were hungry and began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. And when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, look. Your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. But he said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and ate the showbread, which was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests. Or have you not read in the law that on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are blameless? Yet I say to you that in this place there is one greater than the temple. But if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is Lord even on the Sabbath. Okay, a lot in there. Some of it we get because we went through the story, but some of it, what's happening? During this time and Jesus' time, the Pharisees were chasing Jesus around, looking for ways to take him down, just like Saul was chasing David around, trying to take him down. Kind of the same thing. We're going to try to get him at any chance we can. And the Pharisees, they had taken the law of Moses, but they had added layer upon layer upon layer of man-made law, baloney, on top of, on top of, on top of layer after layer. And they had new laws. You can't do this. You can't do that. They were working in the letter of the law. They forgot the spirit of the law to further life, to help man, not to strike man down and accuse and condemn him for everything he did. So they're saying you can't do this, can't do that. And they stacked their man-made laws on it so high that any time they wanted to accuse anyone of anything, they had a ready-made law on hand to do it. All I got to do is watch you for a, a day, and probably within an hour, I've got some little law we cranked up that I can get you with and take you out that puts you away and keeps my stature powerful. That's what it was all about. They were manipulating letter of the law. They forgot the spirit of the law. And so when they saw Jesus and the disciples eating from grain fields on the Sabbath, by the way, there is permission in the law that says that you can take some heads from, from the corners and, and stuff and what all, that's okay. As a matter of fact, the field owners were intended that the corners and the edges of their fields 
were for that, okay? If you went into the field with a sickle and started harvesting mass amounts, now that becomes work. That's financial gain. That's not survival anymore. Now you're taking mass quantities down to go sell it and make money off of it. But a guy just picking a head to eat the grains, that's just trying to live. That's the difference in letter of the law and spirit of the law. The letter of the law says no going in and mass threshing out to try to gain for yourself off somebody else's field. But the spirit of the law says man needs to survive. It's okay to pick some heads. But the Pharisees, they had all them layers. And oh, you're picking heads on a Sabbath. That's work to us. And that's why they're going after Jesus here. They consider grain picking to be work. So this was the perfect moment for Jesus to bring up David. This is just nothing better. Who had done something unlawful when he ate the showbread, and the Pharisees held David with such high esteem. David could do no wrong. He was our King David. So Jesus uses the story of something David did. Is they're going to accuse Jesus, but they are not going to try to accuse David. They held David with such high esteem that David could never be wrong. Jesus asked the Pharisees, don't you remember reading about David eating the showbread that only the priests could eat? Jesus was basically indicating that if David was not guilty for eating that bread, then neither was he and the disciples for picking grain to eat during the Sabbath. The Pharisees gave David a free pass. David gets out of jail free. He, he's, we can't uh, hold him guilty because they understood it was necessary for his survival, but they refused to give Jesus and his disciples the same pass. They didn't give them the same allowance that they're just eating to survive. So look at how Jesus responded to them when they're trying to accuse him for anything they could find. Jesus said that what David did and what what we did by picking the grain to eat, it was unlawful. Look at verse 4. Look at what he said. He said how David ate the showbread, which was not lawful for him to eat. Jesus actually stated that David eating that bread was not lawful. Jesus said that. So yeah, when you just look at the story, David, you're not supposed to eat that bread. It's unlawful. Well, it wasn't. It was not lawful. He admitted that. Jesus said it. But then he took it past just David by saying in verse 5, he said, the priests profane the Sabbath and yet are blameless. What that means is the priests are working on the Sabbath. You come to the temple to do your little Sabbath things and the priests are in there working. It's like people that tell me that the Sabbath day you're supposed to do nothing and I come in on my Sabbath day to church and I do absolutely no work at all. You think setting all this up ain't work? Okay. I see you guys come in here and you tear this stuff down and put the speakers up in the screen and then we take it all down and we take it over to the uh, storage facility and put it away. Guys, that's work. I hurt my back on these things. But the guy that comes in, I'm here for the Sabbath. You're not supposed to work. And they said, wait a minute, we're doing this for your benefit. It takes work. So Jesus said the priests are working in the temple on the Sabbath, profaning it. He's basically saying, guys, the priests are in there working. According to you, they're profaning it. You want to call us and say, I'm profaning it for picking heads? What do you think the priests are doing in there on, in, the, in the temple every Sabbath for you? According to you, they're profaning it. Somebody might as well look at me and go, well, Ray, you can't set these, this gear up. You're profaning the Sabbath. Well, you want a church service or not? <laughs> it's as if Jesus said, You want to accuse us of breaking the law? Then how about what David did? 
And if the priests work in the temple during the Sabbath, then how is it that they are considered innocent when by you they're profaning it? I'm sure the Pharisees really had to think about this one. If I was a Pharisee there, I'd be going, wait a minute. <laughs> he, he does have something here, doesn't he? <laughs> they knew good and well that they never accused David or the priests of being guilty for what they had done. Now, Jesus was forcing them to consider if David and the priests were innocent, then how could they accuse them for eating grain? Jesus and the disciples, they were not out with a sickle taking down mass amounts of grain. It says they were picking a few heads. That is not work. That is not financial gain work. They were not working in a way that actually really violated the law. And so the principle that Jesus was drawing to their attention to concerning the law is that in cases of necessity, in cases of necessity, such as David needing the bread to eat for survival, in cases of necessity, or the priests that were doing the work of the Lord in the tabernacle, because that is a necessity. Those of us that do this work on Sunday to set all this stuff up, it is a necessity so that we can further the kingdom work of God. Then acts of mercy are preferred to ritual services. The ritual services that we do, setting up, the ritual work that we do, getting things up, take second level to the superior upper priority of why we're here doing it, to propagate and further your life and to further the kingdom work of God. That is the upper priority. And so in verse 7, Jesus said, but if you had known what this means, and he quoted a verse, he says, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, then you would have not have condemned the guiltless. Jesus was quoting Hosea 6 and 6, which says, For I desire mercy and not sacrifice, and the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. If you get really, really religious, you think you're appeasing God by doing the sacrifices. You know what God said is better? Mercy. And so the truth is, the Sabbath law did not forbid work absolutely, but it did forbid doing labor for worldly gain. And so activities that were done in the service of the Lord are not only allowed, they are commanded. Somebody wants to argue Sabbath with you. Oh, you shouldn't work. You shouldn't. Okay, ask them what they do on their Sabbath. Do they go to church? You think that pastor's not in there working? What about him? Is he profaning the Sabbath? Why do you hold him innocent, but you hold me guilty? That's what Jesus was getting at. The end result proved out that Jesus went to the cross to die for our sins And that end justified the means. When it comes to the law, no matter what you do, you never will be able to do it right. And that's why it's so good to read from Romans 8, verse 3. For what the law could not do, and that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin. He condemns sin in the flesh that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Thank God he sent his son to take care of that whole mess for me. Don't get hung up on the letter of the law. The spirit of the law is the priority. Thank 
you for listening to Set for Life. We hope you can join us next time, unless Jesus returns for us first. Set for Life is the radio ministry of Pastor Ray Jensen. We invite you to subscribe to our podcast at setforliferadio.com. Hi, this is Ray Jensen. Thank you for giving me the opportunity to encourage you in God's Word. If the Bible doesn't excite you, then you're not reading it. I want you to remember that you are not worthless. You are priceless. Messiah Jesus died on the cross to redeem you so that you can be set for life. You'll be set for life.